0: When life happens, plans need to change. Shaping Change, hosted by certified financial planner Ross Marino, is dedicated to helping financial advisors better serve their clients when life takes those unexpected turns.
1: Welcome to the Shaping Change show. Today, I am joined by Penny Phillips, co-founder and president of Journey Strategic Wealth. Hello, Penny. Hi, good to be here. Glad to have you on the show. I know what your focus is, and it fits so well with what we do. My practice, the website says, Life Happens, Plans Change. The book that I just came out with, with Susan Bradley, is Shaping Change. The podcast is called Shaping Change, and your specialty is actually helping advisors adjust to all the change that goes on in the industry. So how about we start with, what drove you to really focus on that?
0: Well, let me just say we're a match made in heaven in some ways because prior to launching Journey, which you, you know I launched this year, I ran a practice management coaching and consulting company called Thrivos, and the tagline is "Manage Change and Thrive." And so we are we are very much aligned, my friend. But you know, I founded Thrivos because I was particularly interested in. We've got this huge industry, right? And thousands and thousands of advisors. And there is a subset of advisors, despite what has happened in the industry and the economy and society, that have been able to navigate and be successful year after year. And you know, all firms and consultants talk about the best in the business. And I was really fascinated with, well, what makes them the best? And, and when we say that, what do we mean by that? And what I found is that the best in the business weren't necessarily the advisors with the longest tenure or highest IQ. It was advisors with really high EQ and with an ability to change behaviors and belief systems on an ongoing basis. And so I I sort of took that concept and ran with it. And and I've, I've really spent the last 10 or so years not just teaching advisors practice management concepts, but helping them change behaviors because that's what really... Helps you implement those concepts, and so that's been that's been my work for for quite some time.
1: Change is hard for all types of people, and of course, it depends on the situation. Why do you think it's hard for advisors?
0: The so multiple answers to this. I'll I, I won't give you my my real answer to some, or maybe I will at the end. But but the the you know from a consultant standpoint. And what I was alluding to is some people just can't change. But, but from a consultant standpoint, you know, I think of my dad who's 70 years old and still doesn't own a cell phone. So some people are just not, not going to change and never going to change. But, but from a consultant standpoint, look, we're, when, we, when we talk about the advisors who have trouble changing, we're, we're probably imagining, no offense, the, the baby boomer, you know, or young silent gen advisor who's been in the business for 40 plus years who started out in a broker oriented role. And if they started in the insurance BD world, they were in a a sales oriented role. And so their formative years sort of building as producers in this business was completely underpinned by activity, 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 Um, you know, quantity over quality. they grew up in a negative reinforcement sales culture, right? You you don't get X number of lives or bring in X number of assets, you're out. And so it, it created this very, what I consider to be a very sort of tactical way of approaching the business, like get this sale, move on, get this sale, move on. And I think- What's happened is the consumer has changed. The consumer has demanded a different experience from an advisor and from the financial services industry. And the financial services industry hasn't trained advisors well on how to adapt to the changing consumer model. And so we're seeing that friction now with advisors, and maybe not so much anymore post-COVID, but but the last 10 years really sort of dragging themselves to this new consultative business model. and, And they're still in sort of old world thinking. So it, it, it makes sense why they've had a difficult time adjusting.
1: I kind of frame it as a shift from advising to guiding. That's how I look at my 30 year career where early on it was advising, let me tell you what I know and what you need to do. And just the other day, my daughter actually said, well, when you tell people what to do, do they actually do it? And I <laughs> thought, but well, it's, a, it's a whole different world. It's It's more towards guiding at this point and I've heard you phrase it as, you go from the all-knower to the interpreter, which I thought was way better than advising to guiding. So can you talk about that?
0: Absolutely, no, you're right on And It was actually, we're going even before that, it's selling to advising to guiding. And selling didn't have a negative connotation back then because information was less available and accessible to the consumer. If you needed to know something about the stock market about financial solutions, you had to go to a professional. You couldn't Google and, and figure out what everything you needed to know about, you know, XYZ stock. And so we think about the EF Hutton model. You know, when EF Hutton speaks, people listen. Right. Right. And you may be thinking, I'm too young to remember that. I saw. I saw the commercial on YouTube. Okay, that's how I know. <laughs> that's how I know. But but the the, the model now is when the client speaks, we listen, meaning the model has been flipped on its head. The consumer has the ability to literally change a, the, the entire consumer's perspective on a company. Meaning if you say I've had a terrible experience at XYZ Financial Company, you start blogging about it, you start talking about social media about it, I mean, look what happened to Peloton last year, right? Everybody was really upset with the Peloton commercial and sort of everybody sold out. So the consumer has a tremendous amount of power. And with that, I, I, we realized that the advisor's job is, is, is no longer just to educate the client because they can educate themselves via all these channels. The advisor's job is to interpret that information and say, this is relevant to you based on your circumstances or this isn't relevant to you. So it's not teaching them something that they can't figure out really on their own. It's it's interpreting that information and guiding them on what to ignore and what to pay attention to.
1: I remember reading how this generation growing up now is the first generation that doesn't actually need their parents to learn things because they have Google. And not only can you ask Google a question, it then tells you the next 10 or 20 questions you were going to ask anyway. You know, questions other people ask. And that's a brilliant way to approach it. And it really stresses that point that it's not that we're the gatekeepers of information, we help them interpret, we help them think through it. But now we have the next challenge, Penny, which is low cost is instinctive to us. If I see something as a commodity, I want low cost. I'm old enough to know that if something has any amount of value, the last thing I want is the lowest cost anything because I've been burned enough times on that. But we're all still driven that way because we want to save money. So now we're in this low cost, high value dilemma that you talk about. So how do we work through that as advisors and find the balance between low cost and high value?
0: Such an important question. And I I say that same thing all the time. The consumer now has been forced to make a choice between lowest cost or highest value. And it's not just in our industry. I I use the travel industry as an example. Back in the day, you would go to a travel agent and they would book your tickets for you wherever you were going. Now it is cheaptickets.com. I use them all the time. Or travel concierge right? Where you pay a premium to have not just the tickets booked for you, but an experience curated for you. That is now exactly the dilemma the consumer faces in in our industry. Which do I go with? And and what I tell advisors, number one is there, there is a lot of talk in our business about, you know, fee compression and price compression. If you look at the statistics, the reality is advisor fees haven't actually compressed, What's compressed is investment management costs, obviously, with the advent of technology and AI and robo platforms. But the advisors who are still able to charge 1%, one and a quarter percent, who are still able to charge financial planning fees, haven't seen fees compressed for them because of one very specific thing. The fact that they've done a good job articulating to the client the difference between wealth management and investment management. And what I say to every advisor is if you want to protect yourself against this fee compression narrative and you want to get ahead of client concerns, you have to get in the habit of routinely explaining that the industry has used those terms synonymously for a very long time. When we say wealth management or financial planning, the consumer thinks what? They think Wall Street, they think investments, they think their portfolio. The advisors who are really advising and engaging in financial planning and wealth management conversations are doing much more than that. That is a small part of the overall wealth management picture. They are managing, helping clients manage their budgets, cash flow, insurance, retirement planning education planning for their kids, et cetera, et cetera. And so I say to advisors, there's nothing wrong with, especially now after coming off of last year, saying to clients, I realize how important it is for me to to constantly remind you of what we can do for you and how we help people and what we've done for you thus far. And the easiest way to do that for any advisors listening, get in the habit of keeping notes in a single one pager, of all of the things you've helped a client achieve, even if it's something as silly as rebalancing, even if it's something as silly as I help them secure PPP funding, I talk to their kid about setting up a budget for their you know, side hustle that they're working on this summer, keep a list of all the things. And at the end of your review meeting, present that list to the client. That represents wealth management services. And so that, that would be my comment on that.
1: I know we're seeing some CRMs and different technologies out there that are creating a timeline of your interactions with the clients. And I remember the first time I saw that on a demo and I thought, well, duh, why haven't we been doing this for decades? Because you'll have three, four, however many material events each year where we rebalanced, we initiated this, we changed that, we made a decision. This isn't that complicated, Penny, but we haven't been doing it. But what a way to remind the people without saying, hey, just so you know, uh, I'm worth my weight in gold. Let me tell you what I did. But just to keep them plugged in of this is where we've come from. This is what we're doing. Why aren't we doing more of that?
0: that's so that's the secret of of practice management by the way it's the easiest in some cases it's the easiest simplest stuff that we sort of overlook and i think some of it has to do with the fact that the advisor's value for so long was so tied to technical competency in in a discipline so the the advisor felt and i'm generalizing here but but the advisor felt valuable to the client because they were a, a, a brilliant stock picker or you know they really understood the, the technical aspects of investment management. And I, I think in, in getting so caught up in that, you overlook what the consumer really wants sometimes, which is validation, reinforcement, a simple text or email. And that is worth, in some cases, way more than putting together a, a portfolio against a blended benchmark they don't even understand. And so it, it, we we overlook the things because we don't sometimes feel they're valuable when, when it's really the most valuable thing to the client.
1: And oftentimes it's simple things like reminding your clients that they've done a good job saving the amount of money they have and achieving the net worth that they're currently at. So easy for us to be critical and think, man, you could have had twice as much money if you would have just done X, or I wish I met you 10 or 20 <laughs> years ago, or, or whatever egotistical, arrogant thought pops into my head because I'm the man and I could have changed their world, right? So <laughs> right, we know that's instinctive for planners because we want to help. It's what we do. But even just complimenting them, it's, always, it, it's just that simple. But we're not just people that work with clients. We have to run a practice. It's it's not an easy thing. We have to wear multiple hats. And there's a lot of business mo- models out there that are always trying to address that. But from your perspective, what do you think is the biggest single challenge for advisors?
0: Wow. The, um, the way I usually answer this quite really simply, the biggest challenge from my perspective is and will always be human capital, meaning. And, and it's sort of funny because in our industry, especially in consulting, we're obsessed with this notion of advisor to CEO. Like they, like every advisor, we tell them, you got to transition to be the business owner and, and where the CEO had and all these coaches run these programs, advisor to CEO. And it's so interesting to me because number one, have we ever asked the advisor whether they wanna be a CEO of a company and whether, and, and whether that's the path they actually wanna take and are skilled enough to take, have we really articulated for the advisor what a CEO's role is? So much of it has nothing to do with sales and, and sort of tactical day-to-day, it's strategy, it's you know, all, all the other things. Um, and so there's, there's that disconnect between making them feel and and really putting them on a pathway to be the CEO and business owner without properly training them on how to do that. And so much of that training stems around how to actually construct and build a, a profitable business. A lot of that has to do with human capital. Some of it has to do with technology and infrastructure, but for me, it doesn't matter how much we advance as an industry. The technology we provide, the sophistication of the solution set, it always comes down to, are you building a team around you that enables you to step into the powerful role you want to be in over the next 10 years? And so people may have a different opinion on that. For me, that's what it it always comes down to. And, And coaching advisors for 10 years before launching this venture, it was the number one thing we were hired for how do I develop an associate advisor? How do I share equity with somebody who wants to be an owner in the business? And, and, and I always laugh, like, how could we expect advisors to know the answer to this? They, they, you know, they haven't been trained on how to do this. So that's what I still see as the number one challenge.
1: I know advisors are looking at different business models and making moves. And I remember many years ago thinking, you've got to be independent. You know, why would you go to a wire house? And that was really an ignorance perspective. Until you understand how the different models work, there's people that thrive in a wirehouse. They're, they're never leaving because that's the best fit for them. And in this day and age, even the wire are coming out with different models and different relationships. So the industry has matured quite a bit and trying to figure out what is the best fit for you, I think it's kind of challenging. I love that you bring up human capital because that is such a hard part for someone who's a financial planner. You're not a middle manager. You're not a CEO. I'll I'll speak for myself. You know, years ago, I was a self-employed financial planner. That's what I do. I loved it. Maybe you hire an assistant and work with people, whole different world than running a business. But in this day and age, we now have different options. You started Journey Strategic Wealth with uh, some people that had been around in the business for decades, successful practices, you all came together you do have a unique value proposition of how you go about it. I, I thought it was really interesting. So I'd love if you would take a few minutes and talk about this is what Journey's trying to do for advisors going forward.
0: Absolutely. And it, you said something really important about the wirehouse model. And we were inspired by parts of the wire model. And I, I think when, when I was looking at the industry and my partners were looking at the industry, what we noticed is that there was this obviously big shift to independence for obvious reason reasons that the top reasons are, number one, the objectivity. If you really wanna be objective and be a fiduciary and you're selling proprietary products or being incentive, obviously advisors, they, they don't wanna be in that position. So the reasons advisors were leaving were obvious, but what I noticed, having coached many advisors transitioning out of a firm, they would leave, they'd go independent, either on their own or join an independent firm and realize, oh my gosh, some of my core challenges are still here. So I've gotten rid of maybe some of the conflicts. I have access to better technology, but oh my gosh, I'm on my own having to run this business. And inevitably that end up plateauing at a certain point because it's very difficult to gain scale and efficiency and, and you know, be profitable and do all the things you know, that come along with running a business. And so what we found is that the questions that advisors were asking when they were leaving a wire or leaving an insurance BD to go independent were the wrong questions. They were so caught up on what's the payout and am I going to get a better payout that I think they didn't realize that you can get a 92% payout, but you still have to run a business, which means... Inevitably, your payout is going to be thirty-five to forty percent, which is the average of you know an independent uh, advisory practice, uh, you know, net profits of the, uh, on the PNL. And so, the the conversation for me shouldn't have been where can I get a pay, better payout. It's lowest cost or highest value. Lowest cost is the highest payout, meaning you're giving up the least amount to the BD or the home office or whatever, and then you have to run everything yourself highest value to us, meaning we do all of the things that you don't like or don't want to do. And so the model itself, I say, was built for the independent advisor who values and wants independence, but also wants full-fledged practice management support, which I define not as technology, because a lot of RIAs say we offer practice management and that means tech stack. For me, practice management means engaging with advisors on an ongoing basis and guiding them on how to make strategic decisions, having them make the decision and then implementing that decision for them. So for example, you're at a certain revenue point. This indicates to us that you will need a a junior advisor to join your team. Talk through that sort of scenario, identify the type of person that's right for the team. And then it's the home office's job to actually find that person, place them and then pay for that, that person. While that's happening, the advisor still owns the equity in their business. They're still independent. And so for me, it's the best of both worlds. It's the best of the warehouse model and the best of the independent model. And so that's what we've built and so far so good, five months in.
1: It's really a challenge to build the business out there and it's impossible, I think, for anybody to see clearly everything that needs to be done, have the vision, have the skills, have the knowledge. It's just not in there. And I love how the industry is coming up with new ways to partner. And your model certainly caught my attention. And and I think it's excellent. And when you said about the payout, I remember speaking to a CEO of one of the larger firms out there that pretty much every, uh, every advisor listening would know. And I remember when we were talking, he made the comment of, well, I know the first thing everybody wants to know is payout. So I'll tell you how our payout works. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in a bubble world. I, I kind of froze and thought, "What? really, I'm like, I I wasn't actually, I want to know where you were going as, as a CEO and, and it caught me off guard. And, and because I didn't have my advisor hat on at the time, I was talking more from a, a CEO perspective. And even at this day, people are still looking at that payout and it's the low cost versus high value. And, you know, I think that's a challenge. So, Do you think it's really gonna be hard for many advisors to delineate between payout and value or do you think it's becoming a little more apparent for them?
0: So I don't think we're there yet. And I have made it my mission to educate advisors in the industry about this payout versus value piece. Most of my consulting work has been in the independent BD and insurance BD space. And I've been very vocal about the fact that I'm very bullish on the insurance BD advisors. I think they're, they're the, I consider the dark horse of the industry. There's so many really fabulous teams in that space that go unrecognized because in our industry, we're so obsessed with the wirehouse advisor. Let's just be honest. Um, you know, everybody wants the billion dollar UBS team. Um, I, you know, I'm more interested in an advisor who's already building a wealth management practice. And whether that comes from the wires or somewhere else, doesn't really matter to, from my perspective. I, I think we have a long way to go. And, and again, we get back to the behaviors and belief systems that have been in place for years. Advisors for years and years have been told, the, especially in the insurance BDs, the more you produce, the higher you'll go up the grid. So what does that mean to them? That means, same in the wires, by the way, um, the caps were different, right? But the more you produce, the higher you go up, meaning you get rewarded by higher payout. That means you're more successful. That means you're better. That means you're going to get recognized. What we're now telling them is that's not at all the case forget about that. Forget about the relationship between production and payout. This is all about payout and value. And so it's a learning curve. And and I think the more advisors can double down on what they believe to be their value now, meaning their value is not in how profitable they can run the business. That's our job. Their value is not in how well they can pick stocks. Their value is in managing really the emotional experience of the client and being able to be there for them through life's transitions, the more they can double down on that core value, I think the easier it will be for them to detach from things like, you know, this guy at at LPL is getting a 92% payout. And why am I not getting that? It's going to take some time.
1: So let's pivot to the final question. It would be the magic wand question. This is from my daughters. They assure me it works. So, if I let you use it for one wish, and you could wave it, Penny, change anything in the world, what would you do?
0: Gosh, it is, so. It, and I will be perfectly honest with your listeners. Whenever I think of that question, I think of my family, and I, I always default to, gosh, I wish I can, you know, help everybody out and, and do all, all the things. But if I think sort of broader the, the, something I'm very passionate about is public education. I'm very cognizant of the fact that, especially in our business, so much of success for many people has been tied to access to the right people in the business. And so um, I'm a product of New York City public school system. I went to a public college. I you know, wasn't able to go to an Ivy League school, couldn't afford it, all the things. And, and for me, if I could change one thing, it's being able to give access to not just this industry, but any industry that, that a young person wants to go into, giving them the same access as everybody else, despite you know what wealth group or, or demographic group they're in. And I think being a, a, a product of that myself, um, I'm, I'm in a good position to be able to try to advance our industry to, to be able to do that. Um, and it's not just our industry, but we are an industry that is, you know, we're still very heavy, you know, um, male or male dominated in our industry, um, you know, to, to climb the ranks after a certain, you know, level at some of the bigger firms, it's who, you know, and, and where you went. And, and, and I, I'd like to change that. And maybe that'd be something I'd change right now in addition to world hunger. So those two things.
1: Excellent. And I'll be more specific. It's not just male dominated, it's white male dominated. That's right. And it's good that it's talked about. Uh, People aren't embarrassed to talk about it. I don't think at this point, it's talked about freely. Uh, It's got to start with the conversation of, okay, this is an issue. We got to do something about it. And it's being talked about a lot. And I hope it gets talked about a lot more. Um, So thank you. Great answer. Appreciate you being on the show. Penny Phillips, it's been great.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to Shaping Change with Ross Marino. This show is for general information purposes only and is not intended to provide recommendations or advice. Speak with a legal, tax, or financial advisor before making any decisions. Past performance references are historical and do not guarantee future results. Visit rlsummit.com to learn more.